Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brian T. Cunningham. He's in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm going to talk about uh, his research. So, Brian, thanks for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Well, if you would tell me, what are you working on right now that's uh, interesting to you? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor in you know, electrical and computer engineering. And in my case, uh, I work on ways of using light and electromagnetics for uh, disease diagnostics. So uh, we've been very active uh, in the past several months developing a, a novel detection methods for COVID virus and detecting uh, COVID antibodies uh, from a droplet of blood. Uh, you know, basically using uh, light and some electromagnetic tricks to do those things uh, faster and with better sensitivity uh, than the conventional methods used in labs today. Oh, so how would you use uh, light and magnetism to, uh, you know, to perform biological measurements? What's the premise? So say, for, for example, we were trying to detect the virus. I, I know a lot of people in your audience have probably taken a PCR test where, you know, they take a nasal swab, uh, send it to a lab, and you know, they open up the virus to extract the DNA sequence and then try to detect a specific DNA sequence. So, so that kind of test uh, is uh, kind of involved, uh, requires some sensitive equipment and a trained technician to do it correctly. And so uh, one approach that, that we've been using is to use a nanostructured surface called a photonic crystal um, that can you know, interact with light from a laser, just like a regular red laser that you've seen laser pointers made out of that can uh, amplify the scattering between light uh, and a virus particle. And so uh, working with a professor in the chemistry department, we've engineered uh, nucleic acid molecules that can bind to the outside spike proteins on the outside of the virus, capture them on our surface, where by illuminating them with a laser, we have a special type of microscope that we've constructed that can immediately count the viruses. So uh, we're, in fact, working on a COVID breathalyzer where you could breathe into a device. It'll filter out any things that are uh, the same size as a virus and then capture them on our sensor where we can rapidly count them. So we were trying to, to have methods that um, would be faster, uh, but just as sensitive as the laboratory method. Well, I, I figured most viruses are, what, 50 to 100 nanometers? In the you know in width or diameter, what wavelength of light would you need to use in order to uh, to scatter off them, and would that be high enough energy where the whole biological matter would blow apart? So in our case, we're using a red laser, so a wavelength of six hundred and thirty three nanometers. Uh, it's it's not so powerful of a laser that it would you know destroy the virus particles. It, it's enough to you know shoot light at them and for the light to scatter off the virus. And, and actually, we detect the the light that's uh, scattered away that kind of goes off at different angles. If you think of light like a beam, 
you know, kind of goes into a path, hits something, and then takes off in another direction. So even though that wavelength is, you know, 10x what the virus dimension may be, what because of the scattering, you're able to tell what you're looking at? Like, how do you get an image of the, the surface of the, the virus, the outside? Yeah. So yeah, that's a really good question. So, so we're not trying to actually get a beautiful image of the virus. We're, we're just trying to detect the presence of the virus through like the, the, the shadow it casts when light scatters off of it. So when, when we see a virus with our instrument, it's like a little uh, black blur, but it's distinct enough that we could see each individual one, even though we're not capturing a high resolution image of it. Of the virus itself. But how could you tell what it is you're looking at? It's not a bacteria. It's not, uh, you know, another kind of virus. It's not just some random genetic material running around. So viruses are, you know, as you say, distinct size. So um, things that are much smaller than a virus, like proteins or um, nucleic acid molecules, uh, don't scatter enough light for us to see them uh, in, in the system that we've built. And then also, as I mentioned, we, we have this specially engineered capturing molecule that uh, binds with the spike proteins in the outside of the virus. And so if it's not a COVID virus, it won't be captured. We can actually see those um, like non-target viruses bouncing around, uh, but they don't capture and stay in one place. So that, that's how we discriminate between uh, one, one type of virus and another. So do you think you're able to, I guess, see or determine that you only have one particular type of virus? Like how sensitive is this? How specific? Very specific. And this is kind of new research that we're doing right now. So we, we haven't fully tested it for COVID virus. Uh, my, before COVID started, my collaborator, Professor Zing Wang, he's a chemist. He and I were working on uh, detecting other types of virus and namely Zika virus. And so we, we Professor Wang published this method for detecting Zika virus uh, and basically uh, when COVID started, we pivoted and adapted the approach uh, for doing the same thing, uh, but with uh, COVID instead. Okay. What are, what are some of the main challenges ahead of you in uh, making this work and being able to, you know, see again exactly what you want to see and make it count? Yeah. So um, the, the first version of the detection system that we built was pretty much built like a scientific instrument in the lab for graduate students and postdocs to use. And so we really don't hold back in that case. It's like built on a, a, a optical bench. We have all sorts of precision things to keep vi vibrations from getting into the measurement and things are kind of like mounted on, you know, arms and kind of sitting out there in the open. Uh, so now we're building a portable version of the same instrument that would be much lower cost and be like desktop size. Uh, so, so one challenge is making a like inexpensive portable version of the instrument. Then another is interfacing the sensor with some kind of a cartridge that could perform the test. So we've been collaborating with a, a colleague of mine at Stanford University. His name is Professor Dumerci. His specialty is making test cartridges that can filter uh, small things like, like viruses uh, from uh, blood and other bodily fluids. So we first take the sample, process it through his device, and then we interface that with our sensor. So, so now we're working on like bringing those two elements together, like the sample processing and the detection. How, how big of a uh, field of view are you looking at? You know, again, the virus being between 50 and 100 nanometers, using 600 and you know, some odd nanometer red light from a laser. But how, how far does it raster? 
how big and is the this stage or the area you look at? The view is about um, 30 by 30 micrometers. And so within that field of view, we can actually see many individual viruses. Yeah, no, that's big. What, what's the, um, do you have a sense already of the density of viruses from certain samples? You know, in that field of view, how many individual elements can you discern? And then do you multiply them out and assume that it's uniformly distributed over a larger field? That, that's right. Yeah. So, so we have a, a, like a sensor area that's bigger than our field of view, but we can prepare the area that we're imaging with that capturing molecule. And that's where we focus our attention. So if, if there's a virus that doesn't reach that field of view, we won't detect it. But still, the, the volume is small and, and the viruses do diffuse around in, in liquid you know, rapidly enough that, that within a couple of minutes, uh, they're bound to touch the, the sensor and have an opportunity to detect them. So we, we can see down to one or two viruses distinctly at, at a time. Uh, but then within the field of view, we can see hundreds. Oh, so this can run, so the red light is not invasive, so the viruses, uh, you know, I guess people don't really call them alive, but their outer coating is not broken apart, so they can be observed in, in a kind of an undisturbed way, is what you're saying. Yeah, so, so as you could imagine, there's significant safety concerns about making a system that detects, you know, infectious viruses. And so um, we're able at this point to get a deactivated COVID virus um, that there's commercial suppliers and even some research collaborators that can provide those. If, if they're deactivated by heating, actually that destroys the, the outer spike proteins on the virus. Uh, but if you deactivate them with gamma rays, uh, those proteins are still intact. So we have to use the, the deactivated ones by gamma ray. Oh, when, they, when they're deactivated, I mean, they are still intact that's been observed or what, what's different about them? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That's right. Yeah. So they're still intact, but the they're no longer infectious. And so, you know, the goal would be to destroy the nucleic acid content so that the virus can't infect and replicate. Uh, and so there's you know, many ways to deactivate a virus. So you, know, you can you know, soak them in bleach would be one way, totally destroys the, the virus and its outer shell. Uh, or uh, you were trying to do more like gentle deactivating. So it's still an intact virus, uh, but, but no longer infectious. But how can you tell that they've been deactivated? What, what changes about them? Do the, the proteins on them denature? I mean, what happens? Yeah, so that, that's an important question. And so for, for safety reasons, when we get deactivated viruses, um, it's necessary to you know, ensure that they're no longer, like, no longer infectious material. Uh, we don't do this ourselves because you'd have to have a biosafety level three or four facility to do it. Uh, it's where you take the live virus and you also take the deactivated virus and in a culture, expose them to live cells and see if they can invade and replicate. And so that, that way, you can verify that your deactivating process was 
uh, thorough. Okay, so yeah, what are some of the remaining hurdles for you to uh, you know to commercialize this or get it into use? So in, in this case, um, we when when COVID first started, we had this idea, and we wrote a, a small grant application to the National Science Foundation. They had a rapid funding program for new ideas for COVID diagnostics, and so we applied to that, and we got the money to do it like in 30 days. It was kind of amazing, the administrative hurdles that, that they went they went over to make it happen quickly. So uh, we, we used that money to you know, buy some parts, build a system, uh, devote a graduate student who's working on their PhD to it. And then we, we demonstrated it and got some nice data. We, we were publishing a journal paper in a journal called Nature Communications. Um, it, it's been accepted. It should come out in a couple of weeks. That shows like the first you know, peer-reviewed evidence of the method. And, and we used that data to write a grant application to National Institutes of Health and the NIAID, which you may have heard like uh, Dr. Fauci is the head of that institute within NIH. So right. interestingly, we, we wrote two grant applications. One was for using our system to detect COVID. The other one was for detecting HIV. And so you know, both go for like the peer review and um, the the COVID one did not get funded, and the HIV one did, and so in, so in fact, actually, we're now moving forward with developing this method, but for um, HIV viral load monitoring, and but it's you know, very similar uh, how you would use it for different types of viruses. And I'll I'll say that it's kind of a long road towards commercialization. We'd love to be able to do that. We're we're we've been filing you know patent applications. I've been talking with companies who may have an interest in this. Uh, but uh, it's necessary to you know, go through FDA approval for, for new technologies like this and take some resources. So uh, we're seeking that out. Maybe someone will hear your podcast and be interested mm-hmm. to learn more. And that, that's one of the reasons why you know, we have you know, press releases and, and talk to people in the, in the real world, try to gain some excitement for what we're doing. Is there a, a shorter wavelength of light that you're looking into using? I would guess the benefits of, uh, you know, the shorter the wavelength, the more that you could see, the more clearly you could see. Yeah, I, I think that's that's correct. So the structure that I told you about, the thing that's called a photonic crystal, um, the one that we designed initially was for red wavelengths. We've also recently built one for blue wavelengths, and the same basic principle would work, that you'd, you'd have a blue laser uh, shining against the particles, should be able to uh, discriminate them with even better resolution between neighboring particles. So, so while, while that's true, blue lasers are more expensive than red ones, and the the blue wavelength photonic crystal has smaller features in it, so it's more difficult to manufacture. So, you know, we kind of try to balance one thing against the other. So, I think that there would be benefits from going to smaller wavelengths, but then there'd be like a cost in terms of the difficulty making the biosensor and more cost in the detection system. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What would be the uh, you know the theoretical limit? What kind of laser and wavelength could be used that uh, wouldn't destroy the biological material but give you the highest resolution? Yeah, so yeah, we don't think that we're destroying the the viruses even now, and and actually we're planning to use the same method even to um, we, we we've shown that we can see things even smaller than viruses, even things as small as like protein molecules, like antibody molecules, even individual ones. Um, I think the, the approach gets more able to see smaller things as you go to lower 
wavelengths. Yeah, I, I don't. I guess I, I haven't thought carefully about what the theoretical limit would be. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, we're not trying to make images of the viruses or the molecules. We're just trying to see them by their scattering so we can count them and, and measure the strength of their scattering. So yeah, I, I'd have to give that some more thought before I could give a, a great answer, how, like how low we could go and, and see even more. I guess the point here is good enough is what you're seeking that's, uh, you know, scalable and fast and, you know, can count. That's right. Yeah. So, so it turns out that you know, virus particles are kind of sizable in the world of nanoparticles. We, we started off actually using our method to see gold nanoparticles with sizes down to five nanometers. And, and we could see those individually. So um, something metal like gold is a stronger scattering object than a virus. Uh, but we're, when we first started working on this approach, we were really thinking about seeing individual molecules, which are you know, like a you know, order of magnitude smaller than a virus. So, um, so I think our system is easily good enough for detecting viruses. And then we're, where we're kind of stretching the limits is seeing how small of molecules we can observe with it. I mean, anything uh, those sizes has essentially no color, right? They um, just appear dark, or do they, they appear clear, or what do they appear? Yeah, so that's a good question. When you say like, if they have color, that kind of makes me think that if they have a, a specific wavelength that they scatter or absorb preferably. And so I don't know yeah, that the viruses have a preferred um, like color or wavelength. Uh, for, for scattering or absorption. And so we're, we're choosing you know, a wavelength, in this case, red, um, that is one of the wavelengths that will scatter off a virus, but I don't think that they're that choosy. You, you could choose many wavelengths in the visible spectrum and, and, those, and that those photons will, will scatter off the viruses. Mm, okay. So uh, in addition to, I mean, I guess this project is taking up, you know, all of your attention, but like what's, what's left on the road to, uh, to getting it out there again to be used and used clinically? Like, what are some of the things you have to figure out? Um, yeah, so um, as, as part of our work, I mean, the, the way that you, you demonstrate a new technology like this is you kind of go up the learning curve. So you first you know, start off by you know, characterizing its limit of detection and how selective it is against detecting non-target viruses and other materials that are in a test sample by just making those samples artificially. You, you, so you can get some just buffer solution add the viruses in, and then detect from that. But then you know, that's kind of an artificial test. And so the, the next thing that you would do is characterize it again, but now doing all your experiments with um, your viruses in uh, like a sample media from a patient, like, like serum or viral transport medium from nasal swab, uh, something like that. And, and then um, you would go to the next step, which is detecting things from clinical samples. So then you, you gather some samples from patients that have to get uh, institutional review board approval for, for doing that. Uh, then you, you test it on your method and, and compare it against a gold standard method uh, to see how it stacks up. So there's kind of like this curve of increasing complexity that you go through to prove to your medical community that your method is you know, sufficiently good and that it offers benefits compared to things that are already available. So is this, uh, you think, a number of years it's going to take, or is there a fast track for you to get it moving quickly? Um, you know, I, I think for, for this particular method, it'll be about three years before we're demonstrating it clinically. So it, does, it just takes that long to do all the you know, careful experiments and to uh, sh do, like show thoroughly, without a doubt, how it works. 
Well, very good. What's the best way for people to, uh, do you have pictures of the method? Do you have uh, any, you know, you said things look kind of like, you see dark shapes. I mean, do you have any of that data? Do you have any pictures or anything available for people to see? Or what um, can people do to find out more? Yeah, so so we, we have uh, this journal paper in Nature Communications that we've submitted. It's been under peer review for a couple of months, and it just got accepted. So it, it should publish pretty soon. Um, I'll, I'll post it on my uh, research group website. It's uh, nano.illinois.edu. And so uh, I'm sure that when the paper comes out, we'll have a press release, and, and I'll, I'll put some things on my research website to highlight some of the images. Yeah, the, the um, journals have a like a, a ban on like, sharing information from the paper until after it publishes. So, so I still have to hold on for a little while longer. Yeah, well, it'll be. When do you think the publishing will be? In a few months, or no? I think in a few weeks should be. Oh, okay. A few, yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, Brian, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's uh, it's interesting work. You know, it's a little bit uh, out of my wheelhouse, but I think I've understood it. You know, enough. So uh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I appreciate your questions and having the chance to talk with you about the, some of the things we're doing. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.